Book Three, Chapter Twelve of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Harry the Blower came up with his mails a day or two later. Among the letters he brought, there were three at least of special importance to Colin McKeith. One was from the late Attorney General of Leichardt's Land, in whose following he had been while sitting in the Legislative Assembly, and whom he had consulted in reference to the divorce petition. This gentleman informed Colin that proceedings were already begun in the case of McKeith versus McKeith, and that notification of the pending suit had been sent to Lady Bridget at Castle Gaverick, in the province of Connaught, Ireland. The second letter was from the manager of the bank of Leichardt's Land, regretfully conveying the decision of the board that failing immediate repayment of the loan, the mortgage on Mungar station must be foreclosed, and that in due course a representative of the bank would arrive to take over the property. The third letter was from Mungar Bill, dated from the furthest bush township at the foot of the Great Bight, which had formed the base of Colin's last exploring expedition. A mere outpost of civilization it was, that very one which he had described at the dinner party at Government House, where he had first met Lady Bridget O'Hara. Apparently, in Mungar Bill's estimation, its only reason for existence lay in the fact that it had an office under the jurisdiction of the Warden of Goldfields, for the proclamation of new goldfields and the obtaining of miners' rights. Mungar Bill's epistolary style was bald in its directness. "'Dear sir,' he began, the biggest mistake we ever made in our lives was not following up the streak of colour you spotted in that gully running down from bando range to pelican river if we had stopped and done a bit of stripping for alluvial for certain we should have found heavy shotty gold with only a few feet of stripping but i've done better than that got on the lead dead on the gutter to my belief that gully is the top dressing of a dried-up underground watercourse it's a pocket chock full of gold you see it's like this here followed technical details given in local gold diggers phraseology which would only be intelligible to a backwoods prospector or a leichardt's land mining expert mckeith read all the details carefully turning the page over and back again in order to read it once more there was no doubt making due allowance for mungar bill's exaggerative optimism that the find was a genuine one the writer resumed i've pegged off a twenty men's ground this being outside the area of a proclaimed goldfield, are reward as joint discoverers. The ground joins on to your old pegs, and the wonder to me is that nobody has ever struck the place. However, that's not so clear as you might think, for there has been very little talk of gold up here. In fact, the PM does warden's work. Besides, the drought has kept squatters from pushing out, and it's too far off for the casual prospector. Luckily, the drought has driven the blacks away, too, further into the ranges and I haven't seen any miles this trip like the ones that went for us last time. It's a pity Hensor pegged out then. He'd have come in for a slice of luck now, we three being the only persons in the world, until I lodged my information at the warden's office this morning, who had ever raised the colour in this district, or had any suspicion of a show. I reckon, though, that if the fine turns out as I think, you'll be making things up to little Tommy. I'm to have my miners' rights all properly filled up tomorrow, and she'll make tracks back to the gully at once, so as to leave no chance of the claim being jumped. I've named it McKeith's Find, so your name won't be forgotten. I don't count on a big rush at first, all the better for you, but I shall be surprised if we're not entitled at the end of four months to our government reward of five hundred pounds, as there are pretty sure to be two hundred miners at work by that time. I'm writing to Ninnis, though I don't know if he has done his job yet, 
telling him to lose no time in getting here, and you won't want telling to do the same. I reckon that whether the drought has broken by this time or not, it will pay you better to start for here than to wait at the station until there are calves coming on to brand and muster. Ninnis will be with us all right, and it would be a fine thing if you came up together. He's a first-rate man and has had a lot of experience in the California goldfields. Poor luck, however, or he wouldn't have come over to free select on the Laura. It took me a good three weeks to get as far as the Pelican Creek, and I couldn't have done it in the time if there had been blacks about. Knowing the lay of the country, too, made it easier than it was before for us. Cudgee has turned out a smarter boy than Wombo was. No fear of miles with their infernal jagged spears being round without his sniffing them. One of the horses died from eating poison bush. Don't go in for camping at a bend in Pelican Creek. Between it and a brigalow scrub, first day you sight Bardo Range going up the creek, where there's a pocket full of good grass one side of a broken slate ridge. It's no good, but I wouldn't swap the other horses for any of Windet's famous breed. There's some things that will be well for you and Ninnis to bring, and a box of surveyor's compasses would come in handy. Here followed half a page on practical matters, and then the letter ended. McKeith pondered long over Mungar Bill's letter, as he sat in the veranda smoking and watching a little cloud on the horizon, and wondering whether rain was coming at last. If Mungar Bill was right, the gold find would mean a fresh start for him in his balked career. At any rate, it behoved him to take advantage of the chance, and to go forth on the new adventure, without unnecessary delay. But the savour was gone for him from adventure, the salt out of life, the stroke of luck, if it were one had come too late. And now the great drought had broken at last. Next evening there came up a terrific thunderstorm, and a hurricane such as had not visited the district for years. It broke in the direction of the Gidea scrub, and raised many trees. It passed over the head station, and travelled at a furious rate along the plain. Hailstones fell, as large as a pigeon's egg, and stripped off such leafage as the drought had left. Thunder volleyed and lightning blazed, Part of the roof of the old humpy was torn off. The hide-house was practically blown away. The great white cedar by the lagoon was struck by lightning, and lay, a chaos of dry branches and splintered limbs, one side of the trunk standing up jagged and charred, where it had been riven in two. Upon the hurricane followed a steady deluge. For a night and a day the heavens were opened, and poured water-spouts, as though the pent rain of nine months were being discharged. The river came down from the heads and filled the gully with a roaring flood. The lagoon was again almost level with its banks. The dry watercourse on the plain sparkled in the distance like a mirage, only that it was no mirage. No one who had not seen the extraordinary rapidity with which a dry river out west can be changed into a flooded one could credit the swiftness of the transformation. Then the heavens closed once more. The sun shone out piteously bright and the surface earth looked, after a few hours, almost as dry as before. But the life-giving fluid had penetrated deep into the soil, the rivers and creeks were running, green grass was already springing up for the beasts to feed upon, the land was saved. Alas, too late to save the ruined squatters. There were so few of their beasts left. Nevertheless, the rain brought new life and energy to the humans, Cuppy, the Malay boy, fetched buckets of water from the replenished lagoon, and scoured and scrubbed with great alacrity. He came timidly to his master, and asked if he might not wash out with boiling water the closed parlour and Lady Bridget's unused bedroom. He was afraid that the white ants might have got into them. McKeith's face frightened Cuppy. 
so did the imprecation which his innocent request evoked he was bidden to go and keep himself in his own quarters and not show his face again that day at the new house since lady bridget's departure mckeith had slept eaten and worked in the old humpy his original dwelling but cuppy did not know that the white ants had not been given a chance to work destruction upon the ladyship's properties regularly every day mckeith himself tended those sacred chambers bridget's rooms were just as she had left them he had done nothing yet towards dismantling that part of the new house in which she had chiefly lived he had put off the task day after day but since receiving mungar bill's letter and now that the drought had broken and the man in possession a prospect as certain as that there would come another thunderstorm he knew that he must begin his preparations to quit mungar to do this meant depriving himself of the miserable comfort he found during wakeful nights and the first hour of dawn the time he usually chose for sweeping and cleaning his wife's rooms of roaming ghost-like through the new house where every object spoke to him of her in the daytime he shrank from mounting the steps which connected the verandas but in the evenings he would often come and stroll along the veranda and sit in the squatter's chair she had liked or in the hammock where she had swung and smoke his pipe and brood upon the irrevocable past and then he would suddenly rush off in frantic haste to do some hard physical work feeling that he must go mad if he sat still any longer to-day however after cuppy had fled to the kitchen he went into his old dressing-room and stood looking at the camp-bed and thought of the day of bridget's fever when harris had given him her note to maule and he had sat here huddled on the edge of the bed wrestling dumbly with his agony the association had been too painful and in his daily tendance he had somewhat neglected this room and had usually entered the other by the french window from the veranda thus he now saw that a bloated tarantula had established itself in one corner between wall and ceiling and an uncanny-looking white lizard scuttled across the boards and disappeared under a piece of furniture leaving its tail behind a phenomenon of natural history at which he remembered now bridget had often wondered he opened the door of communication where on that memorable night he had knocked and received no answer and passed through it treading softly as though he were visiting a death chamber and indeed to him it was truly a death chamber in which the bed all covered over with a white sheet might have been a burr and the pillows put lengthwise down it the shrouded form of one dearly loved and lost he gazed about staring at the familiar pieces of furniture out of wide red eyes smarting with unshed tears in her looking-glass he seemed to see the ghost reflection of her small pale face with its old whimsical charm the shadowy eyes under the untidy mass of red-brown hair in which the curls and tendrils stood out as if endowed with a magnetic life of their own the sensitive lips the little pointed chin and in the eyes and on the lips that gently mocking alluring smile there were a few poems that colin had taught himself to say by heart and which he would recite to himself often when he was alone in the bush the ancient mariner was one and there were some of rudyard kipling's and he loved the idols of the king in a special guinevere three lines of that poem leaped to his memory at this moment thy shadow still would glide from room to room and i should evermore be vexed with thee in hanging robe and vacant ornament he went to the wardrobe where her dresses hung as she had left them only that daily he had shaken them cared for them so that no hot climate pest should injure them 
and in so doing he had been overwhelmingly conscious of the peculiar personal fragrance her garments had always exhaled an experience in which rapture and anguish blended how he had loved her god how he had loved her and yet latterly how he had got to take his supreme possession of her as a matter of course had allowed the joy of it to be blunted by depression and irritability over sordid station worries he remembered with piercing remorse how often he had neglected the trivial courtesies to which he knew she attached importance how he had been prone to sullen fits of moodiness had been rough even brutal as in that episode of the blacks brutal to her this dainty lady his fairy princess and now he had lost her she was gone back to her own world and to her own kin if only he had yielded to her then about the blacks if he had curbed his anger shown sympathy with the two wild children of nature who were better than himself in this at least they had known how to love and cling to each other in spite of the blows of fate he had horsewhipped wombo for loving oola and swift retribution had come upon himself that he should have lost bridget because of the loves of wombo and oola it was an irony as if god were laughing at him he set his teeth and laughed the mirthless laugh which had startled harris well whether it were automatic or planned retribution on the part of the high powers the trouble could be evened up and done with i was a damned fool he said to himself and i've been taught my lesson too late for me to benefit by it except this way i'm not going to be downed for ever i'll go through my particular piece of hell on this darned old earth if i must and then i'll wipe the slate and come out on top of something else that isn't love there's possibilities enough along the big bite to satisfy most men's ambition and it's not much odds anyway so long as she isn't seriously hurt with that summing up of the matter he seemed to gain stoic energy now he went back to his dressing-room and pulled out to the veranda a couple of worn portmanteaux into these he put a variety of personal belongings among them pictures from the walls and old photographs in frames that had been on the dressing-table it was significant that none of these portraits were of his wife the portmanteau he dragged along the veranda to the side of the steps leading down to the front garden then instead of returning to lady bridget's room he attacked an escritoire in the parlour in which he had kept family and private papers and which flanked her chippendale bureau he brought out another collection notebooks papers bundles of letters dating much farther back than his occupation of mungar salvaged from the wreck of his old home his mother's work-box his father's shakespeare the family bible a piteous catalogue he looked long at the book and the photographs these last were portraits of his father his mother and his sisters who had all been massacred by the blacks when he was a boy he separated all such relics from the general lot placing them and also two or three packets of papers upon a shelf table in the veranda it was that table where lady bridget had laid the cablegram from lord gaverick which she had shown him the day before she had left mungar now it seemed to him an altar of sacred memories he brought various other small things out of the parlour things he had not the heart to destroy all belonging to his youth and placed them there as he looked at them a sudden thought seemed to strike him and a wave of emotion passed over his face softening its hardness for an instant but the grimness came back he made a quick movement back to lady bridget's room and when after a minute or two 
he came out again he was carrying a curious object which he had taken out of the deep drawer beneath her hanging wardrobe it was a dry piece of gum tree bark shrivelled and curled up at the sides so that the two edges almost met at first he put it on the heap that he had turned out of the portmanteau for destruction his grim thought had been to top with this strange memorial of his marriage night the funeral pyre he had intended to build but again the spasm of emotion contorted his features his shoulders shook and a dry choking sound came from his lips he took up the piece of bark too and laid it with the daguerreotypes on the table he seemed afraid to give himself time to think but went from room to room here and in the old humpy dragging one thing after another out onto the veranda some of the heavier articles he had to hoist over the steps connecting the two verandas and then to drag them down the other steps into the front garden where they strewed the gravel round the centre bed in spring and summer when the chinaman had been there to water and lady bridget to superintend the planting and pruning this bed had always been gay with flowers banking a tall shrub of scented verbena the perfume of which she had been particularly fond of now there were weeds most of them withered instead of flowers the verbena bush had long been dead and the dry leaves and branches beaten down by the late storm made a bed of kindling never was their garden so desolate the young ornamental trees and shrubs all dead the creepers dead also even the hardy passion vines upon the fence mere leafless fruitless withes of withered stems mcKeith paused after lugging down two squatters chairs the first house carpentering he had done for his wife after their arrival at the head station and in which he had resolved no future owner of Moongar should ever sit that was the thought fiercely possessing him rough chairs and tables and such like that had been there always might remain but no sacrilegious hands should such things made for her or with which she had been closely associated they should be burned out here in the deserted front garden where not even cuppy the only other occupant of the head station would witness his preparations he himself would lay and kindle the funeral pyre and to-night when there would only be stars to see him he would light the first holocaust he stood considering sweat dropped from his forehead his gaunt frame was trembling after his effort which had been heavy and he leaned against one of the tarred piles supporting the veranda to rest but only for a few minutes then his feverish activity recommenced he piled up the wooden furniture on the bed of withered verbena branches filled the interstices with dead leaves that he collected from the garden laid the smaller things books papers pictures where they would assist the conflagration and did not stop until the pyre had reached to the level of the veranda railing he reflected grimly that there was a chance of sparks setting fire to the house itself and calculated the extent of the gravel between deciding that if he was there to watch there would be no danger all the time the old kangaroo dog vino had been nosing round him sniffing at the objects lying round then looking up at him with bleared wistful eyes and evidently unable to understand these strange proceedings once or twice he had roughly pushed the dog away but when he had finished the work and seated himself from sheer fatigue on the veranda steps vino came and squatted beside him the dog's head upon his knee he filled his pipe and smoked ruminatively the exertion had had one good effect it had dulled the fierceness of his pain as he sat there 
a faint breeze that had risen with the approach of sunset, cooling his heated body. He thought again about Mungarbil's letter. He looked at the great pyre in front, and caught the gleam of the lagoon below, through the bare branches of the trees, the little ripple on its surface, the freshening green at its marge. Then he gazed out over the vast plain towards the horizon. From his low position on the steps, the middle distance was hidden from him. Through the reddish tinge cast by the lowering sun, he could discern, far off likewise, the unmistakable signs of new-springing grass and the course of the river, for so long non-existent. From the gully he heard the sound of rushing water. It had been a roaring torrent just after the storm, and he knew that a flood must have come down from the heads. Yes, the drought had broken. The plain would soon be green again. Flowers would spring up, as they had done for Bridget's bridal homecoming. If the rain had fallen a few months sooner, the station might have been saved. And even now, with the remnant of three or four hundred cattle, provided there were no crippling debt, no spectre of the man in possession, he might still hang on, and in time retrieve his losses, lie low, sink artesian wells, make the station secure for the future. He had been so fond of the place. He had taken up the run with such high hopes, had so slaved to increase his herd, to make improvements on the head station. He had looked upon this as the nucleus of his fortune, the pivot on which his career as one of the empire builders would revolve. And now, well, some clever speculator no doubt would buy it at a low price during the slump, stock it with more cattle, work it up during a good season or two, and when cattle stations boomed once more, sell it at an immense profit. That was what he himself would have done, had he been a speculator in similar conditions. Even still, he could do it with a small amount of capital to supply a sop for the bank. Now that the drought had broken, they would be more likely to let him go on. He thought of the three thousand pounds Sir Luke had made him put into settlement on his marriage. He had not wanted to do that at the time. His Scotch caution had revolted against the tying up of his resources, and his instinct was justified. If only he had command of that money now. It was his own. His wife was rich. That was the one benefit he could have taken from her. But it was impossible to broach the question. Suddenly the dog stirred uneasily sniffed the air, and leapt to the gravel walk where it stood, giving short, uncertain barks, as though aware of something happening outside for which it could not account. McKeith lifted his head, bent in the absorption of his thought, and looked out for the disturber of Vino's placidity. But Cuppy was nowhere in sight, nor was there sign of other intruder. Where he sat, the garden fence, overgrown with withered passion-vines, bounded his vision, and had anybody ridden or driven up the hill through the lower slip-rails, he would not have seen them, probably would not have heard them, for there were no longer dogs, black boys, chinamen, or station-hands to voice intimation of a new arrival. All the old sounds of evening activity were hushed, no mustering mob being driven to the stockyard, no running up of milkers or horses for the morrow, no goats to be penned, they had been killed off long ago, no beasts grazing or calling no audible life at all, except that of the birds, who, since the rain, had found their notes again, and were telling each other vociferously that it was time to go to bed. Indeed, the silence and solitariness of the once busy head-station had enticed many of the shyer kinds of birds from the lagoon and the forest. Listening, as he now was, intently, McKeith could hear the gurgling, coo 
of the swamp pheasant, which is always found near water, and likewise rare sound, the silvery ring of the bellbird rejoicing in the fresh-filled lagoon. But Vino was still uneasy, and Colin got up onto the veranda. He stood there, listening all the while, strained expectancy in his eyes, as if he too were vaguely conscious of something outside happening. And now he did hear something that made him go white as with uncanny dread. It was a footstep that he heard on the veranda of the old humpy, very light, a soft tapping of high heels and the accompanying swish of drapery, a ghostly rustle, a ghostly footfall echoing. For surely, in this place, it could have no human reality. It approached along the passage between the two buildings, halted for a few seconds, and then mounted to the front veranda. The man was standing with his back to the old humpy. He would not turn. A superstitious fear fell upon him, and made his knees shake, and his tall, lean frame tremble. He dared not turn his head and look, lest he should see that which would tell him Bridget was dead. But the dead do not speak in syllables that an ordinary human ear can hear, and Colin heard his own name spoken in accents piercingly clear and sweet. Colin. To him, though, it was as a ghost voice. He stood transfixed, and just then the dog bounded past him. It had flown up the steps barking loudly. That could be no immaterial form upon which the creature flung itself, pawing, nosing, licking with the wildest demonstrations of joy. He heard the well-remembered tones. Quiet, Vino. Good dog. Lie down, Vino. Lie down. The dog seemed to understand that this was not a moment for effusiveness. Without another sound, it crouched upon its haunches, gazing up at the newcomer. Then Colin turned. Bridget was standing not a yard from him, a slender figure in a grey silk cloak, with bare head. She had flung back her grey sunbonnet and shrouding gauze veil. He saw the face he knew, the small, pale face. The shadowy eyes, wide and bright, with an ecstatic determination, yet in them a certain feminine timorousness. The little pointed chin poked slightly forward, the red-brown hair, all untidy curls and tendrils, each hair seeming to have a life and magnetism of its own. It was just as he had so often pictured her in dreams of sleeping and waking. He gazed at her like one who beholds a vision from another world. And then a great sob burst from him, the pitiful sob of a strong man who is beaten, broken with emotion. The whole being of the man seemed to collapse. He staggered forward, and such a change came over the gaunt, hard face that Bridget saw it through a rain of tears which fell down her cheeks. "'Oh, Colin, won't you speak to me?' "'Biddy.' He went close to her and gripped her two wrists, holding her before him while his hungry eyes seemed to be devouring her. "'It's you. It's really you. You're not dead, are you?' "'Dead? Oh, no, no. I've come home.' "'Home!' he laughed. "'Oh, don't! Don't!' she cried. "'Don't laugh like that!' "'Home!' he repeated grimly. "'Look around you. A nice sort of home, eh?' "'I don't care. It's the only real home I've ever had.' "'But look! Look!' She followed his eyes to the great pyre in the garden, with the dead leaves and the pieces of furniture, the squatter's chairs, the little tables he and she had covered together, 
the hammock that he had cut down leaving the ropes dangling many other things that she recognized also then her gaze came back to the veranda to the open portmanteau the different objects still strewing the ground and then to the shelf-table against the wall near the hammock and there to his most cherished possessions she knew at once his mother's work-box the shabby shakespeare the portraits and on top of all the piece of gum-tree bark she snatched her wrists from his grasp darted to the shelf seized the shrivelled piece of bark and pressed it against her bosom as though it had been a living thing oh you couldn't burn this you were going to burn it with the rest but you couldn't any more than you could have burned your mother's things i thought of it all the way i knew that if you could burn this too there would be no hope for me any more i prayed that you might not burn it but how how did you know i was going to burn the things he stammered bewilderedly i saw it all i saw you just like this on the veranda so thin and hard and miserable and so proud yet and stubborn i saw it all saw the bonfire ready and i saw this piece of bark and then something made you stop and you put it with your mother's things instead you remembered oh mate you did understand you did remember that first night by the campfire and we two just we two she broke off sobbing you saw you saw he kept saying but how how did you know tell me mate i saw it all in a dream at castle gaverick three times i dreamed the same dream and i felt inside me that it was a prophetic warning we're like that you know we irish celts and you though you're a scotchman you used to laugh at such things but they're true they're true i've had glints of second sight before joan gildare understood when i told her she believed it was a warning god had sent me and she said i must go to you go at once lest it should be too late she wanted to come with me but it would have been difficult for her to leave work and i didn't want her i wanted to come to you all on my own and then then he asked breathlessly oh then i left castle gaverick at once and in london i took my passage there was an e and a boat just going to start of course i knew the route i got out of the steamer at lurville and came straight on by train i didn't wait anywhere i thought i'd get out at crocodile creek and pay someone to drive me up here but you've got the railway brought nearer and when i got out at kangaroo flat there was the most extraordinary thing then i knew why the voice inside had been urging me on so quickly an extraordinary thing what was it he said in the same breathless broken way it was mr ninnis he was there standing on the platform just off his droving trip he was going to take the next train to Louisville. if i had stayed there as captain halliwell wanted me to i should have missed him he'd got a letter from mungar bill oh i know all about that but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter in the least you can go if you like and find the gold i'll stop at jane gildare's cottage in leichardt's town and wait for you i don't care about anything if only you'll let me be your mate again but colin she rushed on for he could not speak and the sight of a great man struggling with his tears is one that a woman who loves him can scarcely bear to see and yet the sight made bridget happy for all its pain colin when i first saw ninnis do you know what i thought that you had sent him to meet me 
that you too had been warned in a dream no i wish i had been my god i wish i had been what would you have done colin i'd have been there myself he said simply it would have been me not ninnis that you saw at kangaroo flat station she held out her arms the roll of bark dropped on the boards of the veranda in a moment he was pressing her fiercely to his breast and his lips were on hers and in that kiss by the divine alchemy of true wedded love all the past pride and bitterness were transmuted into a great abiding peace end of book three from the point of view of colin mckeith and others chapter twelve end of lady bridget in the never never land by rosa prayed